Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we again come to you. We bask in knowing the privilege of your presence as we worship you together now. We thank you that you are holy and that you purge out from us all that is unholy and unclean. Lord, we pray uh, that you would have your way with us. We thank you and praise you that you are gracious and able to deal with us in all of our sin. We thank you that you are merciful and able to lift us up in our weakness and in our frailty and that you're strong and good and true and gracious. And we pray, Lord, as we turn to you again, as we turn again to your word, and as we listen to every word that comes forth from your mouth, that you would place that word in our hearts that we might begin to love you in new ways. Place that into our minds that we may understand your ways better. Touch our wills, Lord, by it, that we may submit gladly to your perfect and sovereign will, that all of our life we may learn to glorify and to enjoy you forevermore. And so we come to you again. Father, when we ask, speak, for your servants are listening. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll be reading the first 16 verses. Be the focus of, our, uh, of the sermons this week and the next. I'm not sure how far we'll get this morning, but please give your attention now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of our God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that you all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So far the reading of God's word. May he indeed add his blessing to it. As I prepared, uh, was preparing for this sermon this morning, I thought a title, uh, perhaps too long, and that's why it's not, but a good title would be 
um, sex, singleness, safety, and sanctification. Right? Those are all things that are dealt with in this passage. Um, but as we look at this text and all that it entails, um, Paul has just, right, where are we? Paul has just, in the previous verses, he has explained to the Corinthians that they are united to Christ and are the body of Christ, and they are to flee from sexual immorality and to glorify God in their bodies. In the first century, uh, at Corinth, in this area, the worldview was indeed pagan. We've looked at this um, for the past couple of weeks. And this pagan worldview, this worldview of the Corinthians, expressed itself in two poles. Uh, there was the pole, one side was self-indulgence, and the other side was asceticism. Right? Dualism, the philosophy of dualism, the belief, the worldview of dualism was the flavor of the day. And what that meant was that they, they would think that the soul is good and that the body is bad or indifferent, to say the least. Soul is good and body is, is bad. The soul is what mattered. The body didn't matter. And sadly, as we look at the history of the church, the Corinthian church, I'm sorry, the Christian church, this even has been the thinking, the dominant thinking for many believers as well. But because the body is bad, they would think, uh, it is the source of urges, of sinful urges and desires. And so you see these people uh, would think that there are consequences, uh, or that there are consequences to this way of thinking, the people thinking in this way. These are the pagan poles, if you will, enjoying partaking of everything without restraint, every urge, which is what many Corinthians in the church were doing there. And the other side was the denying or rejecting everything, even God-ordained things given for our good and for our pleasure. Right? Therefore, they would say there's no fornication, yes. In fact, there's no intimacy at all, even in marriage. Right? Celibacy was commanded, they would think. And this confused some of them there at the church to the extent that they sent and they asked the Apostle Paul to explain and to clarify. And Paul responds in chapter 7 with instruction and clarification. This pagan worldview, quite contrary to the biblical worldview, resulted in erroneous practice. Right? Worldview uh, expresses itself in living out, in practice, including, in their case, these two poles, promiscuity on the one hand and asceticism on the other hand. And remember these things that were common in the culture. Right? As we looked at, uh, I'll remind you, it was common, uh, it was not uncommon, rather, um, to have a mistress to satisfy uh, every urge that you might have. Um, other adultery and fornication was common. Um, and there's the issue of the temple prostitutes that we saw um, a, a number of, uh, in previous chapters. Uh, and in chapter 6, Paul corrects in this error, and he told them to flee from sexual immorality and to glorify God in their body. I mean, the other side of this pagan worldview, again, was the denial of all sexuality, strict celibacy. These people felt that if they mastered all bodily urges, they would indeed become more pure. And we can see that people coming out of this pagan worldview, right, those who were converted out of this thinking, we can see how possibly they were wanting to remove, them, to remove themselves, distance themselves from all this sexual sin and this immorality because they now, now realize the wrongness of what that was. We can maybe understand how they would be tempted towards celibacy, even in marriage. And so these questions are asked of Paul to clear them up for them. Um, and Paul tells them that though celibacy in some situations is good, and it is a right practice, and has some benefits, but for most, pe most people, marriage is the norm. 
And he speaks of this later on in chapter 11, as we'll see when we get there. But not all have the gift of singleness. Not all have the gift of celibacy. Marriage, says Paul, can facilitate a greater completeness for many. And it can indeed protect against temptation. Right? There is a distress, right? we, read, we read of, in the congregation, resulting from sexual immorality. He says this in verse 26, if you go down. I, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, right, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Right? There is a distress going on that he's, a, that he's um, dealing with, resulting from this immoral practice. And that would have shaken, it would have hindered a new Christian coming out of this pagan way of thinking and way of living. And the gift of celibacy, indeed, for some, would have helped in that environment. Paul, as we know, is likely a widower at this time, right? And he is, therefore, at this time, celibate. But notice that though this is the case, Paul does not command celibacy for all. Rather, he commends it to all who are called to that situation. And as we look at this chapter, it's good to start by clarifying a number of things that people have gotten wrong um, and, pe- and things that people have misunderstood in the past and even in the current and present. Um, first, we need to recognize that while this is a very long treatment of marriage and related issues, it is not an exhaustive treatment of these things. He doesn't say all that could be said in this passage. Paul is dealing with issues going on and being asked of him in this context. Some have mis- misunderstood what verse 1 is saying. Again, verse 1 Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman. Some have misunderstood this as Paul declaring that men shouldn't have relations with their wives. They have taught. This is what they think that Paul is teaching. The verb there, uh, not to to have sexual relations, is to touch, not to touch a woman. But the intent is surely sexual relations. And the word for woman could also mean wife. It's the same word in Greek. But this is not what Paul is saying. Right? These are not the words of Paul. He is not saying that a man should not have relations with his wife. This is not the message from Paul. In fact, it's a slogan. Another one of the slogans that the, the Corinthians um, had, were saying, and Paul is addressing and correcting this view. Right? It comes from the Corinthians. It is not from Paul. It is not Paul's advice. Some have taught that that is what Paul is saying, but that's not what Paul is saying. It's not coming from Paul. It is a slogan from those who wrongly understood Paul's message regarding celibacy for some. The point being made is to stay in the condition that you were in when the Lord called you. Were you married? Stay married, even if to an unbeliever, he goes on to say. Uh, Are you celibate? Stay celibate. Marriage is not commanded, and celibacy indeed has its benefits. And that shouldn't be discounted. Are you single and struggling, Paul says? Seek to marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. People come to the church in different situations, in different uh, stations of life, and we need to, uh, to love them, to love them and to take them and to point them always to Christ and his word where they can learn and they can grow as believers. We aren't to fix them, right? And all of their baggage and all of their stuff, right? We can't, we, we, we can't time travel and go back and undo the errors that people have made, even our own errors. Rather, we fix their eyes on Jesus and the Holy Spirit does the fixing. So what is the Spirit telling us here in chapter 7? Well, we see a number of ways that our Lord provides for us, right? Our Lord is a providing God. He gives us provisions. 
And how has he done so? How has he provided for us? We see first in verses 1 to 7, God's provision and protection, right? His provision and protection. Uh, In verse 1, we have uh, answering the letter they wrote to Paul, right? He's answering, he's responding to them. That's why we talked about uh, weeks ago, right? This is probably the second, his second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, We don't have that first letter, but he says, concerning the matters which you wrote, about which you wrote, right? And then he says, uh, so he's answering this. Clearly some in Corinth were thinking and teaching this slogan, even even in the context of marriage. It is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. And so the question is asked uh, to Paul about this situation. And some have taught this in church history, in the history of the church. Uh, but again, Paul is correcting an error of some in Corinth who said that even in marriage, people should abstain from marital relations. Right? Those are not Paul's words or Paul's advice. And this is obvious. We know this how. Well, if we read on in verse 2, uh, we see the case that actually Paul is saying, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Right? Clearly, that's not what Paul is saying, to abstain marital relations. The husband should give his wife uh, to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband that does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Right? There are situations where celibacy is good, when one is called to, cel- uh, to, to celibacy, or when waiting to be married. But it is not to be the case for those who are already married. That's what some were teaching. Yes, immorality was rampant. And it was a huge problem in this area and in this church. We've already read about it in this letter so far. And also there's a problem was the lure of their own pagan worldview and their own practices. And that being the case, what does Paul say? What does he tell them? He's emphasizing that the husbands and wives have authority over each other's bodies. And as they have given themselves to Christ, and they are to reflect that they are not their own. Right? They are Christ. That's the reality. And the picture is what? That the husband and wife, they have given themselves to each other. They are not their own. Their relationship is to be monogamous. One, each for each other, only for each other. And why? Paul goes on to tell us. Because temptation is great. Temptation is great. And listening to backward pagan advice to abstain from relations in the context of marriage magnifies and increases and feeds an already great temptation towards sinning in this way. Infidelity is the result. So the prudish, stereotypical view of Christians, even in marriage, is simply not true. We can hear Paul on this matter right in chapter 7. Paul is quite clear. It is a biblical duty of spouses to enjoy the good things God has given us, especially in this case, in the case of marital intimacy. And so it is a duty to your wife. It is a duty to your husband. Abstaining from this, Paul says, uh, Paul will tell us later on, it creates problems for people and in their relationships. These are complex issues, to be sure, because we are complex and fallen and broken Uh, and scarred people. And we bring much luggage and baggage with us into our relationships, right? One sinner married to another. But God's word is clear in this regard, that to withhold this intimacy in marriage is damaging in many ways, including the increase of temptation 
that can lead to infidelity. And think for a moment how radical this is, what Paul is saying. How radical it is. In the standards of that day, Paul comes in and he makes these declarations, and this is quite radical and extreme. Right? Women, as you may know, in the ancient world had very few rights. Right? They were treated uh, um, without rights in the family and in the civil realm, right? politically and in the, the, the context of the family. And Paul is truly and radically here pro-woman, right? in, in contradistinction to the, the flavor of the day, the philosophy of the day. He is very uh, pro-woman. Right? This is a radical shift. And contrary to the, the push of society, and even it has infected and polluted even our own denomination, has been claimed in our denomination. Paul is not a chauvinist or a, a he-man woman hater. Right? That is not what Paul is. He's radically for women and elevates them. Have, you, uh, have there been many who have violated this biblical ethic and been oppressive to women? Of course they have. And it's wicked and it's gross and it's sinful and it's evil. And they should be called out when this happens. And they should be corrected and they should have the gospel preached to them. It is wrong and it is gross. And it is disgusting. It's contrary to the Bible. But this is an aberration of what the Bible teaches. It's not what Scripture tells us. And so we see what God is doing here. He puts wives on the same level as their husband. They are equals. That is truly radical for this day uh, when this was written. Always maintaining in Scripture this uh, ontological, economical distinction, right? Who they are in their being uh, as opposed to who they are in the roles that God has placed them and the categories that they are in. We see this beautiful consistency in God's word, right? And so we can see this played out, right? Last week we looked at Ephesians chapter five uh, in this context. This passage that talks about the roles and the functions of the home. There we read that according to their roles, the wife is to submit to the headship of her husband, and here, 1 Corinthians 7, we're taught that the husband's body is his wife's. Right? It's not his own, it's his wife's. And the wife's body is her husband's. And the word there that says, um, uh, the husband should give his wife, uh, I'm sorry, um, to have authority, right? Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body. That word have authority, it means power over, right? To exercise authority over. It doesn't mean property or ownership, right? It, has, it means to have authority over. And in our fallen world, in our lingering sin, the vestiges of our fallen nature, they remain and they cling tightly to us as God uh, grows us throughout our life and it falls away. It remains, yet remains, and will remain until glory. But that's why this God-ordained intimacy is so important in marriage, Husbands and wives are equal in this regard. And those relationships should manifest what? They should manifest the tenderness and the care and the mutual acceptance, even reflecting our Savior and His care and His tenderness uh, that He has for His church. Right? And so we see in these verses God's provision and God's protection for His people. So is abstinence ever, ever allowed in marriage? Right? Is this ever to be the case? Well, in verses 5 and 6, Paul goes on, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Not as a concession, uh, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Right? So abstinence in marriage is allowed. 
If there's what? If there's agreement between the two, that there will be. And for a time. He says, do not deprive each other except by mutual agreement. Why? So that they can devote themselves to times of prayer, to specific periods of prayer. Notice how careful and sensible God's word is here. It's to be done thoughtfully and only for a limited time. And the reason why is so that the door is not opened for satanic temptations, right? So that Satan may not tempt you. In general, yes, but also in the context, think of what's being spoken of, right? He has just gotten done talking about uh, fleeing from sexual immorality. In this whole the context of the association with uh, the temple and the prostitutes and the pagan deities that they represent. And so also... Care and duration, a limited duration, is because of what? A lack of self-control of either or both of the spouses. And for these reasons, it is permitted, not commanded, permitted, and there must be mutual consent. And then in verse 7, we read, Paul talks about himself. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And as we said earlier, Paul is likely a widower at this time. Um, and we would think that this is the case, right? Because uh, to Jewish, according to the Jewish tradition, um, it was expected and sought after that men would have large families and they would certainly have a wife. Um, and we know <clears throat> from Acts chapter 26, this is likely the case. We look towards the end of Acts in chapter 26. Uh, we read something of this. Uh, starting at verse 9. Paul says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. Not, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority, right, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but they were put to death. I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Right, And so we see these references uh, to receiving authority from the chief priests. Right? He's doing these things right? he, he, in the synagogues. Right? And so he's, um, it, it's a reference to uh, who he was and his standing and the authority structure that he sought. Right? So he certainly, as a man under authority, with authority, would have had a family. Right? Paul was li- likely a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, and a single man would not be a member of a ruling council put in this situation. It was required, as you may know, uh, of a man to be married if he was to be sit on courts um, and other things like that to make judgments. Um, and why would that be? Why would the Jewish, Jewish tradition uh, be set up that way? It's simply because there is wisdom and a growth that comes from having a family that cannot be attained in any other way. Right? Somebody who has a family knows this, right? There are things that you learn and ways that God shapes and challenges and grows you that you won't be shaped and challenged and grown outside of that situation. And so what happened to Paul's wife? Right? We don't know, and Scripture doesn't tell us, uh, but she may have left him after his conversion. Or she may have died. But whatever it was, Paul tells us that he now has the gift of celibacy, and he desires that others had it as well. Because of the problems of some in Corinth, with burning, with passion, and engaging in sexual immorality. He hopes this for others, that they would indeed have this same gift. And so we see in verses 8 and 9, 
again, God's protection and is providing protection. But then here we see in these verses a provision for the passion that they had, right? We've seen the provision and protection and now God's provision for passion, right? Again, verse eight, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion, right? That's the indication that you were not called to celibacy or don't have that gift. If this is true of you, if you were burning with passion, Right? And for the one who struggles in this way with the passions of the flesh, it is neither wise nor safe to continue in that state. God has provided for that situation in the context in the covenant of marriage. And see how masterful and merciful God is. Right? Your God is masterful and merciful in providing for our needs. He knows his creatures. He knows us, even in all of our messy states and our messy conditions. He knows all of our manifold needs. And the fall has distorted and damaged all the outworkings of our urges and desires and the fulfillment of those things. But God in his wisdom and in his love and in his mercy has given a way to deal with and to satisfy and to protect and to provide for you, dear Christian. What a merciful and masterful Lord we have indeed. And perhaps later on this Lord's Day as you seek to fill this day with worship and rest, Consider these things. Consider the providing God. He's a God who provides for us. And think about this and rejoice in his love and his care for you, dear Christian. And as you do so, this should warm your heart. Right? And you should be in awe of our loving God. And so we have this provision and protection and for the passions that we have. And then we see God's provision in providence, Right? His provision in providence in verses 10 and 11. It, it, it's in the positions in which he's placed us. We see he even provides for us. And again, people come to the church, right? People come to the church in different stations of life. He brings us from different places and out of different contexts with all of our history and all of our varied and, and, and uh, messy histories. Not all are married to believers. Not all are single. Not all are celibate like Paul. And so he says, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. A wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce her wife, his wife. Paul describes here believers who are married and they're tempted to leave their spouses. But he says divorce is not an option to escape marital obligations. If upon learning that the marital relations were required of those who were married from believers for the reasons that Paul has given. And married people want to leave that marriage to remain celibate. Paul says, not I, but the Lord gives this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband. You must not divorce, he says. We'll pick this up next week, this topic, as we finish the remainder. And we speak, it speaks of this contagious holiness right, that we see from the believer to the unbeliever, the believing uh, spouse to the unbelieving, and even the holiness positionally of the children of that of, uh, children of one one believing parent. But I want you to take away what we have here this morning. I want you to see this: that God provides. Right, our Lord is a God who provides. He's a uh, God. His provision and His protection are made clear. Provision and protection in our passions and in the places in which He's called us and placed us. Wife. Your body is for Jesus. 
Therefore, your husband has authority over your body so that together you might express the union of Christ and his, bo- his bride. Right? Husbands, your body is for Christ. Therefore, your wife has authority over your body. You are not your own. You were bought what? With a price. He said in chapter 6, verse 20. So what? Glorify God in your body. And remember that all that we do, every context, there's nothing, that, nothing of our life that should not be seen through the lens of our union with Christ. If you do not, what is happening? What is happening if we miss this? If we remove this, this one aspect of our lives, remove Christ from it? If you're outside of what God is prescribing here, what happens? Right? As long as you're pursuing your own pleasure, so long as you are asserting your own authority, your own freedom, you're not glorifying God in your body. The way of the cross is demonstrated in marriage. As each spouse places the other first before themselves, serving one another, dying to self, serving, sacrificing, supporting one another. But also the resurrection of the body is demonstrated in marriage. As marriage becomes a place where Christ's love for the body is demonstrated. Your body belongs to Christ. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Remember we read, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. By his power. If you are single, then this is God's gracious gift to you at this time. If you spend all of your time envying those who have the other gift, then you will waste the time that God has given you for this. Your body, singles, also is for Jesus. And Jesus for your body. Take that energy, take that drive that God has given you and use it for Christ. Pursue Him. God calls you in this time to develop your self-control, your ability to order your life towards the goal of knowing Jesus. And as you're pursuing that goal, the goal of knowing Christ and ordering your life and your desires around a pursuit of Him, The day may come when you find someone who distracts you from the single-minded pursuit. Paul says, if you find such a person that does so, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But if you don't find such a person, then Paul says, have you found that you found a good and gracious gift that is from God? The world would tell you that the body is for sex and sex is for the body. But the world also crucified the one for whom the body is, Christ himself. So be careful who you are listening to, right? Is it the word or is it the world? May it be the word indeed. God raised the Lord. He will also raise us up by his power. And so let us, whatever our station in life, married or single, let us live whole-souled with all of our being, with all of our soul and body. Let us live for our Savior and our Redeemer. We are not our own. We were bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us glorify God in all things with our bodies and let us give him praise and give him thanks. And let us plead with him to continue to draw us near to himself as he grows us ever more into into his image. God is not confused. He is not befuddled by our confusion. He has given us direction and protection and clarity even amidst and even despite of all of our struggles. He provides for us. May we yield to his ways. May we submit indeed to his merciful and masterful provision for all of our lives. And so as you, brothers and sisters, descend back into the world against the hostiles that you will engage, 
to be sure, and the foreigners to our faith in this world, as you yourselves are sojourners and strangers, may you exhibit the love and the mercy and the stability that you've received as sons and daughters of our King. Amen.